All right, so we mentioned earlier that Mormons will often claim that they don't have creeds, but do they? Uh, given the definition of creed that we've kind of been discussing tonight, do they, do they have creeds? Yeah, I do kind of think that uh, the Articles of Faith is the most obvious uh, example of a creed, although maybe it's not as... Uh, well, it is technically scripture, so I guess it's even different. It's, it has more authority than we believe it had creeds should have because they believe that it was revealed from god that uh they so basically if it's scripture they have to believe it right isn't that kind of the idea of scripture Mm -hmm. Uh, it's god's word so they've elevated the 13 articles of faith to scripture whereas we wouldn't even hold the creeds to the level of scripture which is kind of fascinating so it's even super it's like super it's a it's a super creed (laughs) you know when it's on the level of scripture You're entering Outer Brightness. Fireflies, welcome back to Outer Brightness Podcast. Uh, Matthew and I are recording for the first time in several months. We've uh, tried to get together a few times over the last uh, several weeks, but I've had to push it out and reschedule a number of times due to uh, some trips that I had to take. Um, and so we're just going to do a little bit of catching up because it's been a while since we've we've talked. Uh, so Matthew, uh, lots of changes in your life since we uh, spoke late last year. Uh, you have uh, well, what's the biggest change? Why don't you share that with uh, with our listeners? Well, I'm pretty sure that my my wife would be serving me papers if I told her that my job is the biggest change. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, I don't know if we recorded about that, but I think I mentioned it at some point that, yeah, so last December uh, we got married. It was on our third anniversary of our first date. So we've been dating for three years then got married on our third anniversary. So that was uh, last month. It was great to see my family fly out to New York. And then, um, also that same month I graduated, um, from school. So I'm finally done with school, at least for now, who knows what the future may, may bring. Um, and then, um, then starting a new job. So a lot of changes all at once. Plus I moved out of my apartment. So, um, my, my family of squirrels is no longer living with me. They've had to relocate and find their own place, you know, move out on their own. But, uh, so yeah, so we've got a new place. I haven't moved out West yet to Idaho, but we will soon. So lots of changes all at once. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and you and you and Rebecca met at church, right? Yeah, yeah. We met at uh, <clears throat> Albany Baptist and uh, well, outside Albany, New York. Yep. Nice. She got me Very this pretty cool. sweet t-shirt, actually. I don't know if I showed you those periodic table of reformed theologians. Although there's some people in here that aren't technically reformed, like Martin Luther is not technically reformed. He'd probably get upset if you labeled him as a reformed theologian. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I can't remember who else, but that's pretty sick. Why do, it's actually, glad, why do you think he'd get upset if you labeled him reformed? Well, I mean, there's the whole controversy with Zwingli, right? So he said, he said, you are of a different spirit <laughs> regarding the Lord's Supper. <laughs> so to be thrown in the same uh, 
you know, in the same cage along with him. He might not like that. Okay. But how about so, you? How, uh, what's new? I know you've been, so you, you mentioned before when we were talking that you had gone on a couple of trips. I know you went on vacation, right? On a cruise or something. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I went on a cruise to the Bahamas, um, got back last, well, a week ago this past Friday. And um, it was a fun trip. We went down and down to Florida, flew down there, um, spent the night in a hotel and then took a bus over to the pier at Port Canaveral. Um, there was supposed to be a rocket launch that day. Uh, a company called Astra was launching their first rocket, um, but it ended up getting delayed and, and they finally did end up uh, launching it. Um, I think the next day or a couple of days later, but we didn't get to see it, unfortunately. Um, but it was a fun trip. We uh, went to Nassau um, in the Bahamas and also an island called Bimini. And um, spent a couple of days on the beach there uh, with the beautiful blue water and um, just had a good time together. Um, so it was, it was fun. Apologies there for my dog folks. Uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah, not sure what's, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what's gotten into him. We, we uh, he's a newer dog. We got him uh, a couple of weeks before Christmas um, rescued him. And uh, yeah, he's um, he's a little golden Yorkie and he's uh, one of those that, barks and yips at everything. And there were some neighbors outside with their kids uh, riding uh, some of those like uh, motorized uh, vehicles that you can get for your kids. And that was, that had him going crazy a couple hours ago, but that's over now, but he continues to go on and on with his barking tonight. So hopefully if I keep him in here with me, he'll stay quiet. But um, yeah, prior, prior to the, um, to going on the cruise, in fact, the right, the week right before we left on the cruise, um, I traveled down to Georgia. Uh, my uncle passed away. Um, he had gotten COVID and, and then pneumonia following COVID and um, was hospitalized for a time and, and then uh, succumbed to the pneumonia. And so uh, sad times for that. Uh, got, but got to go down to Georgia and visit with my cousins and um, see my dad and my sister. They flew in from Utah and my brother flew in from Texas uh, for the funeral. So it was kind of good to reunite with family, but wish it was under different circumstances for sure. Yeah. Sorry about that. That's uh that's no good. Sounds, but, like um, rough, sounds like he had a rough year. Yeah, it was a little rough. Um, that's my uncle that I've talked about on the podcast previously. He sent sent my dad the um, the placard with uh, the great prologue on it that that hung in our house. And I've talked about how important that was in my thinking about um, who God is and who who Christ is, and um, you know, kind of comparing and contrasting that with with Mormon beliefs about uh, who Christ is. And so, um, yeah, kind of tough to see him pass, but grateful that he's now uh with the lord amen yeah, i guess that's our the hope that every christian should have i think too often we want to stay here as long as we can but it's because we forget about what's coming next <laughs> right yeah so yeah it's kind of bittersweet so sorry to hear about your loss thank you so um there was a post of yours that i wanted to ask you about actually let me pull it up real quick hopefully nothing heretical <laughs> i don't think so um so it was the one that um you talked about the line in god's army um, you posted it a couple of days ago. Um, you said that as a young man preparing for your LDS mission, you clung to the line in the film, God's Army, where the character says, speaking of the truthfulness of the LDS church uh, and paraphrasing, quote, it's like God gives you a hundred reasons to believe and one reason not to believe so that you can choose. And that resonated with you. Um, but you said that looking back, uh, your, your thinking on that has changed. That it's almost like God gives you a hundred reasons not to believe in the LDS faith and one reason uh, to believe. Um what made you think about that recently? I don't know. I think it was just kind of spurred. Sometimes just thoughts and memories, you know, come up when you start thinking about the mission. And um, that was, I watched that a lot. And, you know, 
the uh what were the other movies i watched but i watched god's army a lot in preparation that and best two years i think i was on and uh in preparation for my mission because i was excited you know going to europe and preaching the gospel at least what i thought was gospel and um and uh so just thinking about mission times you know like i don't know about you but just thoughts of the mission pop up you know um just people that i met or events that happened and i just remembered that movie and i thought about it you know i thought about that line because that line really stuck out to me at the time because you know you'd hear things about you know what things that are controversial you know blacks in the priesthood or polygamy or things like that and so um at the time i was like you know what there's there's these little things here you know as as gordon hinkley said flex of history you know things that are kind of thrown there to kind of throw you off and it felt like you know that's god just testing our faith because if it was 100 percent true and there was no controversies it'd be so easy to believe, you know, that's kind of how I rationalized it. But then, you know, just looking back on it, it's like, well, I mean, when you're, you're given a very limited set of data, that's what it feels like, you know, looking back as Latter-day Saint, you're getting a very little limited set of data in terms of history, in terms of biblical uh, understanding, uh, you know, understanding of passages and the history of how the church has understood certain passages. It's like, if you get rid of all that and you just keep the blinders on, yeah, it makes sense. It makes total sense. And then, you know, the polygamy and like, why couldn't blacks have the priest until 1978? Ah, oh, those are you know, not a big deal kind of thing. But then once you start thinking about all the, I mean, um, one book I've really been going back into and we've recommended on previous podcasts, um, is uh Yaroslav Pelikan. I think he's a Lutheran scholar. Uh, he does a really great series. I think it's a five uh, part series where he goes about the development of Christian doctrine or the, you know, uh, how Christian doctrine is, you know, been developed or refined over, over the centuries. And it's, and I think it's fascinating rather than disconcerting as I thought as, a, as an LDS, you know, as an LDS, I wanted everything to be sure and certain, like have everything fixed, have everything figured out. And so if there's any kind of change or debate, that means that you don't, you don't have the true church, but that's not, I don't know. Looking back, I, I find it fascinating now that uh, that there is all this debate and that Christians have been trying to figure out what God really meant in His Word when He when He revealed it. So yeah, so when you look back through time and you see all, you start learning about people through time, like Irenaeus and Ignatius, and they make these very early statements, you know, like second, third century, that are very, uh, very poignant and very they point towards a Trinity and you know things that. We said, oh, you know, those those are were developed hundreds of years later. But you find very clear statements about the divinity of Christ and all these other teachings. You find, wow, there's so much great history here in the Christian tradition. And so then all those reasons that you find in the LDS Church for why there was a supposed apostasy kind of melt away. And so, yeah, there's kind of rambling, but that's just you find the more you learn about Christian history, at least I think, and and you know, biblical manuscripts and things like that. It's not scary. It's fascinating to me, and it, it I think it enriches our faith to know that. You know that the church has has gone through controversies and and um, trials, and that kind of leads into our topic today, I guess. Yeah, definitely a good segue. Um, so, Fireflies today, Matthew and I are going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed. Um, it's the next installment uh, in our series uh, of things that Mormons hate, uh, which we got a lot of uh, hate for <laughs> that that title uh, when we pu- published our first episode in that series, but. Uh, uh, we kind of stand by it. Um, there are things that 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 Mormons hate, and you know, hate may be a little bit of a strong term, but but there are things that Mormons are averse to, um, just because of the the way that their theology uh, points to, um, you know, there having been a great apostasy, and um, that theirs is a restoration of true New Testament Christianity, and and everyone else is in a, is in apostasy, and so. Um, there are just things that that uh, about historic Christianity that Mormons are averse to. So that's that's the whole idea behind this series. And one of those things is is creeds. And so um, Matthew and I thought we would discuss some of the more important creeds in, in uh, a series of episodes. And in, in this one, we're going to talk about the Apostles' Creed. So quick intro. Um, 
Matthew, when I, when I was a young Latter-day Saint, kind of similar to your post, um, when I was a, a missionary in particular, um, there were a couple of books that, that I read that were important to me and, and important to me, especially in that time of, um, you know, a Mormon mission is a really, really a time of formation for young Latter-day Saints. Um, you really kind of come into your own, you step out of your kind of comfort zone and you go out into the world to preach the uh, LDS uh, version of the restored gospel. And you, um, you're kind of stepping out into unfamiliar territory. You have to kind of stand on your own two feet and your own testimony uh, of the LDS church. And, um, you know, for me, it was a period of, of questioning and trying to figure out what do I believe? Do I actually believe these things that I've been taught uh, up until, you know, the 19th year of my life when I went out to be an LDS missionary? Um, but the two books that I read were um, first a, a, a small little book. Uh, barely more than a pamphlet <laughs> called Our Heritage. Um, and it was um, it was meant to be a, kind of like a primer of LDS church history, uh, touching on the highlights, kind of the, the, the more important uh, aspects of, of LDS church history, uh, especially early LDS church history. Um, I remember there was a big push when it was released. I think it was it might have been studied as part of um, the Sunday school curriculum or or even the, the Elders Quorum and Relief Society curriculum. I can't remember which, but I, I think it was studied uh, for a year uh, in one of those settings. Um, so there was a big push for everyone to read it. So I, I read that while I was in the MTC. And then later in my mission, um, I got a hold of the LDS Institute manual, uh, Church History and the Fullness of Times, which is a much fuller uh, treatment of LDS church history. Um, but but in any case, the, the titles of those two books, uh, Our Heritage and Church History and the Fullness of Times, um, kind of give uh, highlight to the fact that um, for, for Latter-day Saints, uh, when we talk about or when we did talk about church history, we largely meant uh, the events from the restoration through Joseph Smith onward. Um, we, we didn't really view much of what happened uh, prior to uh, 1820 as important. Um, 1820 being the year that, that Joseph Smith uh, was supposed to have had, had his first vision uh, experience. So um, anything that happened prior to that was part of the great apostasy and, and was not really considered important and certainly wasn't uh, wasn't covered in um, church history in the fullness of times. Um, but like I said, those books were important to me. Um, and as I was as I was leaving the LDS faith uh, a decade after my mission, um, I made a post on Facebook about how I I felt that now that I had left the LDS faith and kind of decided uh, that in my mind, um, I no longer believed in a great apostasy, the way that the Latter-day Saints teach it, um, that all of Christian church history was mine. Um, that had become my heritage, whereas before my heritage was just those things that the LDS church taught from 1820 on. Um, and so my heritage became the whole of the Christian tradition, like you were talking about with Yaroslav Pelikan's books. And I also got that series and began to read them. Um, and so my heritage included all of, <laughs> all of uh, Christian history, including the uh, historic creeds and confessions of the Christian church. Um, there's a, um, there's a podcast that's done by Ligonier Ministries. I'm not sure if you listen to it or not, Matthew, but it's called Five Minutes in Church History. Um, it's hosted by Dr. Stephen Nichols. And I, I love the intro to their podcast uh, because it describes the podcast as, quote, where we take a little break from the present to go exploring the past. 
travel back in time as we look at the people, events, and even the places that have shaped the story of Christianity. This is our story, our family history. And so that's that's really the way that I felt after I left the LDS church is that, that all of Christian history was mine. Um, that was my new heritage. Um, and so that includes kind of uh, Christian creeds like the Apostles' Creed. I want to read a quote from J.I. Packer. Um, it's in this little book that I have. I picked it up at an um, apologetics conference in Louisville a few years ago. I'm going to try to get it in focus for you. Um, if I move my mic, it might work. Yeah, there we go. So it's called Know the Creeds and Councils. It's just a little uh, primer on each of the uh, major Christian creeds and, and um, confessions. So um, in the introduction, they have a quote from J.I. Packer uh, from... I'm not sure if it's a book or an article, but it's called Upholding the Unity of Scripture Today. Um, And he says, quote, tradition is the fruit of the Spirit's teaching activity from the ages as God's people have sought understanding of Scripture. It is not infallible, but neither is it it negligible, and we impoverish ourselves if we disregard it, end quote. Um, And I think that kind of goes to what what you were saying earlier, Matthew, that um, it's not perfect. Um, There are debates and there are uh, discussions about Christian doctrine throughout the centuries. Um, and it's not, um, that doesn't mean that it's an apostasy, right? Um, we've talked about before on the podcast that, that the new Testament, um, Ephesians four kind of, uh, it, it's a, it's a passage that, that Latter-day Saints quote a lot, you know, uh, about what the structure of the church needs to be with apostles and prophets and all of that. Um, but that passage itself kind of presupposes that there's going to be some sense of disunity uh, within the faith uh, until we all come to a unity of faith, right? Is the way that it's, set, way that it's written. So um, it doesn't mean that it's an apostasy if there are conversations and discussions and, and debates that go on within Christian doctrine. Um, but that kind of leads us to uh, some questions about uh, the Apostles' Creed. Before we jump into those, Matthew, do you want to have any anything to say in the way of introduction or any thoughts you might want to share at this point? Nope, not right now. Okay. So kind of the first question I wanted to discuss with you is, is that Mormons will often say that they don't have any creeds. Uh, what does the word creed mean? Yeah, creed just comes from the Latin credo to believe, right? So anytime you ask somebody, okay, what is it you believe? And you say, well, I believe this, you're basically giving kind of like a verbal, a verbal creed in a sense. But I guess in a more historical sense, creed is more formal than that, I guess. It's something that's not just, you know, off the cuff, it's more something that's kind of been accepted more broadly by one or more churches. Um, so that's kind of usually what we're referring to when we're talking about creeds. But so when LDS are against the idea of creeds, well, I mean, there's the very obvious creed of the, the 13 articles of faith. Um, but I guess there is, there is kind of one major difference uh, with that, though, is that uh, Joseph Smith had, and, and, we'll, and we have some quotes from him, he, he kind of viewed creeds as something that shackled people down, something that was like, you know, that was something that you couldn't change. You absolutely had to accept or else kind of a thing, my way or the highway. Uh, And, you know, you couldn't budge them or change them at all. Whereas I think he, you know, the 13 articles of faith, they're probably more flexible that way, where if the LDS church, the leaders were to say, well, we're going to change article number eight, you know, they'd be fine with that. Whereas no one's going back and changing the apostles creed, (laughs) you know, the verbiage of that. So maybe that's the subtle difference. Okay. Where do you think um, Joseph Smith got his view of creeds? Yeah. As I was thinking about that, um, about his history, I think it's, it might just be due to the fact that 
he didn't like conflict. You know, his family life was kind of tumultuous. You know, he had his parents' uh, marriage was not, you know, uh, this pristine, idyllic marriage as it sometimes portrayed. You know, it seems like his father at one point had trouble with alcohol. You know, he had trouble with money constantly. You know, he would, he had some bad sales deals. I remember going through uh, Rough Stone Rolling where he had this deal where he was, you know, they were going to invest some money into his business and then it kind of all just fell through. So they, they were constantly having problems. And there was also religious problems. His dad was more of a universalist and his mom was more of a, you know, reformed Presbyterian. And so maybe it's just the idea that, you know, these creeds create lines in the sand and they create division. You know, I was trying to think of why specifically he would go against creeds, but that's kind of just what I was speculating and thinking about. Um, What about you? Have you uh, thought about that or have any insight on that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you look at the first account of Joseph Smith's first vision, because the, the, the currently accepted uh, account, the one that's officially accepted by the LDS church is the 1838 version uh, of, of the first vision. Um, and that one actually does have, um, I can't remember if it is, is it God or Jesus Christ in, in the vision that, that tells him that, that all the churches are corrupt, that they draw new to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Um, talks about their creeds being corrupt. Um, you know, so you have that language put into, uh, into the mouth of, of, of God. And um, if you look at the first 1832 version of the, the first vision, um, you don't really have that, that kind of anti-creedal uh, language. Um, I was looking in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, because I wanted to see what it said there, what he might've said there about creeds. And there is a quote there. I think you had brought it up earlier, uh, Matthew. Let me see if I can... Pull it up real quick. It's on page 327 of the edition that I have. Is that the blue one? It's actually the red one. Huh. I've got the um, blue one, so I would check, but my it's holding on my webcam right now. <laughs> so um, but this is from a uh some some comments that he had made in 1843, which is pretty close to uh the year that he he was murdered. Um, but he said, I cannot believe in any of the creeds of the different denominations because they all have the same things in them. I cannot subscribe to though. All of them have some truth. I want to come up into the presence of God and learn all things, but the creeds set up stakes and say, hitherto shalt thou come and no further, which I cannot subscribe to. Um, so he has this sort of anti-creedal, um, sentiment, both in the 1838 version of his first vision and there in 1843. Uh, that's the only quote that at least by the index in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith touches on creeds. There are other statements that he makes with regards to the Trinity uh, specifically that in, in that book. Um, but um, I think, you know, it's important to, to note that, that Mormonism kind of, it doesn't come about in a vacuum. It, 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 kind of rose up in a very specific historical time in the United States. Um, and there was already uh, a quote unquote restoration movement that had been going on for a number of decades in, in the United States. Um, and the church that I belong to actually traces its history back to that restoration movement. Um, and that's, you know, through Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, um, Walter Scott, uh, some of the early prominent Latter-day Saints who came out of that movement are Sidney Rigdon and Parley P. Pratt, uh, among others. Um, and Alexander Campbell uh, and his father, 
were Scottish Presbyterians, and his father came here on a preaching came came here to America to accept a preaching position uh, at a Presbyterian church, and um, right before his father left, or it might have been after his father left. Uh, Alexander Campbell in Scotland, if I recall correctly, had a had a disagreement with the way that Presbyterians were handling uh, communion. Um, I think it was done on a quarterly basis, and um, you had to have a communion coin, basically that was minted that that you would uh, present to uh, affirm that you were in good standing within the Presbyterian Church, and so you could only get the coin from the Presbyterian minister, and so. Um, they didn't have open communion and that, and Alexander Campbell disagreed with that as it was one of his kind of first disagreements that he had with Presbyterianism. And so um, separately, his father is here in America and, and, and having his own uh, difficulties with uh, the Presbytery here um, that he was responsible to and um, kind of drafted up a, 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 document called the Declaration and an Address, which basically um, declares um, his church to be uh, separate from the presbytery. Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of their separation from the Presbyterians. They eventually, when Alexander Campbell uh, came with the rest of the family over to America, they eventually landed for a time with, with Baptists, um, but then fell out with them as well and, and then kind of became their own independent movement. Um, but that that kind of restoration movement, as they merged with other groups that were doing similar things out of Presbyterianism, like Barton W. Stone in Kentucky, um, that was that was growing throughout the 18 teens and 1820s. And, and actually, Alexander Campbell um, from 1823 to 1829, uh, while he was associated with the with the Baptists, uh, he wrote in a in a periodical called the Christian Baptist uh, a series of 32 articles that were entitled "The Restoration of the Ancient Order of Things." So, these ideas of great apostasy, these ideas of restoration, uh, these these anti-creedal ideas, they they were all part of that broader restoration movement. And so I think it's interesting to note about Joseph Smith in particular, that you begin to see the anti-creedal kind of stuff kind of creep in more and more as they move into Ohio and into the kind of into the heart of where um, that broader restoration movement had been successful in Ohio and Kentucky and Missouri. Um, And so as they begin to to get converts from that broader restoration movement, converts who were more drawn to the, the, um, the more, uh, as we talked about with Stephen Pinnaker, the more um, Pentecostal aspects of, of the early Latter-day Saint movement when compared with uh, the Alexander Campbell um, kind of Baconian reasoning uh, side of the restoration movement. Um that's when you start to see more of the anti-creedal language from Joseph Smith. So I think it's interesting just to note from a historical standpoint that it fits squarely within that broader anti-creedal restoration movement. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that background. So do you think, um, because, you know, Joseph Smith tended to include people into his inner circle, you know, and kind of bounce ideas off of them or get ideas from them. Like, I think it was, we're pretty, well, that was the accusation I think of, uh, against uh, Sidney Rigdon that he kind of came up with the, the idea of the two tiers of priesthood. And it was after he joined Joseph Smith in 1830, 1831, something like that, that that's when, you know, that he was criticized for, um, for uh, 
it was David Whitmer, right, that said that. He said, well, it was Sidney Rigdon that came up with this idea of the two priesthoods. So yeah. Joseph Smith kind of had an idea of bringing new people into his group and then, you know, bouncing ideas off of them, getting new ideas. So do you think there was someone in particular that, that might have, uh, you know, kind of uh, pushed him in that direction of going anti-creeds? Um, you know, I don't know. It'd be an interesting thing to try to look into. I don't know if I could pin it on any person uh, right now. I just think it's interesting that um, in his earliest accounts of his his religious experience uh, in the first vision in 1832, you don't see it. But then later on, uh, you do see it um, as they're in in those areas of the country uh, where where the restoration movement was more uh, entrenched. That was also during a time, 1838 was around the time when you're starting to get uh, opposition from people like William Law, right? There's all kinds mm-hmm. of people on all sides that were kind of questioning his authority and his, uh, you know, his calling as a prophet. So if you can kind of make a stronger case against, you know, the creeds of other churches, and that kind of builds your case up in terms of your authority, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So when you were, when you were a Latter-day Saint, Matthew, what, what was your view of creeds? Were, were you anti-creedal? Um, I see, you know, we see on Facebook, uh, Latter-day Saints that are still very anti-creedal. Um, did you have strong feelings about the creeds of Christianity when you were a Latter-day Saint? In general, no. Um, I did remember, I think the first time I ever read the Athanasian Creed was when I was reading Mormon Doctrine by Bruce R. McConkie. I think he just quotes it verbatim and, uh, in his book. So the first time I'd ever read it and I was like, okay, this doesn't make any sense, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's kind of the only really exposure I'd had to creeds. And then later on, I ran into the apostles creed. And I'm like, eh, there's nothing really that offensive in it. So yeah, to me, I, there wasn't specific creeds. I was like really, you know, gung ho against like, oh, this is blasphemy or this is apostasy. It was just kind of more like, eh, it doesn't really make sense to me. Hmm. How about you? Yeah. I don't think I did. Um, I've mentioned before that my dad was a convert um, to Mormonism. So he came from a background where uh, in their church, their Lutheran church, they did read the Apostles' Creed um, as part of their their weekly liturgy, and so um, he didn't have um, he didn't have a strong anti-creedal bent to him with regards to the Apostles' Creed. Um, but when it came to the Athanasian Creed, he did, um, and you know, it's the uh, the Athanasian Creed confused him, and it's part of what kind of drew him to Mormonism and and the view of God that, that Mormonism has. Um, and he and I had a conversation uh, about that. Even after uh, we had both left the LDS church, he was still really struggling with the idea of uh, the Athanasian creed. Um, but for myself, I, you know, other than just hearing my dad talk about those two creeds, um, I didn't really have uh, deep thoughts about the creeds. I think, you know, we would read um, portions of Joseph Smith's, uh, history that the official version, the 1838 version, um, where, like we said, the, 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 the anti-creedal sentiment is, is placed kind of into the, into the mouth of God. And, um, I don't think I really thought too deeply about, about that. It was more just kind of like, um, okay, that's just kind of a general statement about the, the overall apostasy of, of Christendom. I didn't think of, um, specific creeds. And then, you know, not until like maybe in, in the MTC, I read um, the articles of faith and, and the great apostasy by Talmadge. And, and he kind of gets more into that anti-creedal sentiment in, in those books than um, I tended to get maybe in, in Sunday school. Um, but even then, I, I don't think I became like fully entrenched in any, any kind of anti-creedal views. I just didn't really think much about it. 
Uh, again, it kind of goes to that. Uh, it happened before 1820, so it's not really important thing, you know. So that's kind of the way I thought about it. Yeah, but I do thinking back on it more. I do remember in seminary, you know, when we did talk about Joseph Smith's view of of the creeds and stuff, it's kind of treated as this boogeyman. I don't know if you ever encountered that, where it's like the creeds are so bad, you know, like they're just they just weigh people down. And you know, Joseph Smith came, and the rest through the restoration, people were freed from those shackles. You know, it was kind of like treated as a boogeyman, but then we never actually really read any, you know? In yeah. Yeah. It, it was definitely the boogeyman, but I, I never really dug into why, Yeah, you know, exactly. and it, and I don't think we, like you said, they didn't cover it in much detail as to why it just was like a, an overall sentiment that we were supposed to hold. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Um, so we talked about how Latter-day Saints don't really have creeds and, and kind of what the overall uh, view of creeds are within the Latter-day Saint movement. Um how have how have creeds been used historically in the Christian faith? Usually, from from what I've understand, it's basically it's kind of interesting because the three main ecumenical creeds, well, apart from the Nicene Creed, but so the two Apostles' Creed and Athanasian Creed, we don't really know exactly who wrote them, and we don't know exactly when they came into existence, but they just somehow like ubiquitously started being passed around all the churches and confessed, you know, since like the third, fourth century, er, third, fourth, fifth century, something like that, nighttime range. So they've been kind of used as like a common confession of faith. Uh, like we were describing, introducing what creeds are. It's like when someone asks you, well, what can you believe? What do you believe? Well, everybody would have to come up with their own idea. But with these, what, throughout the centuries, there have been people that have tried to challenge the faith or come in and teach different doctrines and, you know, unorthodox or heretical doctrines. And so to have creeds has kind of been like a, like goalpost or, you know, not in a bad way, you know, just the quote that we gave kind of makes it sound like a bad thing, but it's more like fences to keep you from falling off the cliff kind of a thing. So, I mean, there's, there's, if, if you deny the resurrection of the dead, you know, that's in all the creeds, that's, that's a pretty big thing. And there are groups that profess to be Christian who deny that there will be a physical resurrection. So there's just a lot of things there to, to protect the saints from outside influences, you know, wolves that would try to come in and teach false doctrines. And to also, I think it's also a teaching tool when you're, when you're maybe when you got a catechumen, which is somebody who's just new to the faith and then he's learning about what you believe. Well, what's the most basic thing you can turn to, to say, okay, this is what we believe. Well, you can turn to the ecumenical creeds, the, the three creeds were, that we talked about. So it's been, it's kind of got multiple uses but maybe you can fill in some of the details that I forgot. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think you hit all the main points, um, you know, kind of as, as fence posts um, keeping us, you know, and, and that's ironically, that's, you know, what Joseph Smith mentioned in the quote that I read from him as the thing that, that bothered him about it uh, because he, he said, they tell you, you can go this far and no further. Um, but why is that a bad thing? You know, um, to him it was because he he was ranging all over the place with his theology, um, and so he didn't want to be fenced in by by any any kind of uh, thought or uh, creed that had come uh, prior to him. Um, <clears throat> but the Apostles' Creed, specifically, it's, it's the oldest creed uh, of the Christian faith, um, and as you noted, um, we don't really know who wrote it. Um, there is a tradition that is uh, not. Um, not correct, but it, it, it was a tradition that kind of cropped up in the sixth century that um, the apostles, uh, the 12 apostles of Jesus actually wrote the Apostles' Creed, uh, each of them contributing one of the 12 uh, statements. Um, but that that tradition is is the reason why it's called the Apostles' Creed, um, but that tradition about it is not correct. Um, but it is it is attested earlier uh, in, in Christian history 
Um, and it, it kind of comes from, it's developed kind of out of the old Roman creed uh, that was used during baptisms. Uh, and that can be dated to the middle of the second century, uh, right around 140 AD in Greek. Um, and then in Latin later in 390 AD is when it can be attested as well. But the Apostles' Creed kind of kind of develops out of that. Um, but just wanted to get that out there. I think it's I think it's good that you know we have this we have this tradition that develops in the sixth century about it. But it's also good that we can say you know that tradition isn't correct. Um, and so it doesn't uh, it doesn't place upon us uh, a requirement for us to accept it as a, as a, as being on the same level uh, as Scripture. Um, but um, it definitely is uh, an, an attestation to the earliest beliefs of, of the Christian faith. Right. Yeah. Lots of great points. And, and we also would point out that we don't believe that it's in addition to scripture or that it, the creeds themselves are scripture. We just believe that uh, they accurately describe what scripture teaches. So in as much as they accurately describe scripture, then we can consider them true. And that's why they're used a lot in churches in like a, you know, a lot of times they'll be quoted as part of the liturgy of, you know, like maybe an Anglican or Lutheran service or even Presbyterian. Sometimes they'll, they'll read the Nicene Creed or they'll read the, the Apostles Creed. Mm. How about your church? Do you, do you recite creeds as part of your worship service? And and if so, in what way? Uh, no, we don't. Um, we, I mean, we certainly have nothing against it. It's just not part of our worship service. We kind of, ours, ours is less liturgical, I guess you could say, mm. you know, liturgical in the sense of like a lot of times there's kind of like a set, uh, standard way of, of how the, the service goes. And usually it's like the, the, the priest or the minister will say something and then the crowd responds, that kind of a thing. You see a lot of that in, mm-hmm. um, in high, high, high churches, kind of like an English call and response. Yeah, yeah. So there's nothing against that. It's just not something we really do that. But I did see that in the Orthodox Presbyterian church that is in my area and they kind of did that. And I, I like that. That yeah. was interesting. What about you? Uh, no. So <laughs> because my church comes out of that, uh, American restoration movement. Um, so I, w- I wouldn't say that my experience in, in, in church on a weekly basis is, is anti-creedal at all. Um, in fact, I, I, I've never heard an anti-creedal sentiment kind of brought up, uh, in a, in a church service or in Sunday school, uh, or anything like that. Um, it's just, it's part of our history, but, uh, I think we've largely moved beyond it. Um, when I was attending Cincinnati Christian University uh, for seminary, uh, as part of the church history course that I took, um, I think I mentioned this before, the, the professor had us read uh, uh, together, do a call and response kind of through the Nicene Creed as we were studying that that section of church history. Um, and I remember him making the statement because he's, you know, he was lifelong uh, American Restoration Movement uh, person. And um, he kind of made the statement, you know, that that our, our movement has had an anti-creedal past, but he doesn't find anything uh, wrong with, with reading the, the Nicene Creed. Um, so I thought that was interesting, but yeah, no, we don't, we don't recite uh, creeds as part of our uh, worship services. Um, we may do call and response uh, with uh, some scripture passages. Uh, an elder will stand up and, and do a call and response with, with the scripture passages, but beyond that, um, nothing with the creeds. So um, do you think do you think there's anything inherently wrong with creeds, Matthew, uh, as, as for us as Protestants who, who say that the Bible is our, our sole rule of faith? Um, do you think there's anything wrong with creeds? Uh, no, I kind of jumped the gun a little bit. And um, when I said earlier how I described that, as long as they, as long as they adequately summarize and conform to scripture, then they can be, you know, they should or can be used. And um, yeah, if there was something that were completely just wrong that I thought that I found in one of the creeds, I would say, well, 
I would have, I would follow this creed, but with a caveat that I'm not sure about this particular line. So, you know, uh, ultimately, like you said, so we hold the sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Although that doesn't mean that scripture is our only authority. It just means it's the sole infallible authority of rule and faith and practice for the church. And so we do have tradition um, that we need to be careful about. Like you said, sometimes tradition is just flat out wrong. Um, you know, people are fallible. So we have to continually look at scripture as our standard. So yeah, uh, as long as it's, as long as it's agrees with scripture, then it's totally fine. And I think that's a good thing to yeah, I agree. And I'm, you know, because of my background in, in Mormonism, I'm someone who kind of stepped into uh, the river of Christianity at, at 1820. And, um, you know, I, I read Packer's, J.I. Packer's quote earlier, and um, I, I agree with them. You know, we, we impoverish ourselves if we ignore uh, the tradition of the Christian faith. Um, there have been many, many faithful uh, saints prior to us who have um, given their lives as martyrs, who have um, held strong uh, in the face of persecution uh, to the faith, uh, once for all delivered to the saints. So, um, I think I think it's okay to to read the creeds and understand the the development of Christian doctrine and um, how uh, each of the ecumenical creeds uh, was a reaction to teachings that were um, influential within the church that were heretical and and were addressing um, teachings that were contrary to the rule of faith. So. Yeah, it really forced it forced people to have to, you know, to decide, okay, are you with this group or with that group? Because I'm sure we'll get into it with uh, with the Nicene Creed, but in the Council of Nicaea, that was the Arian controversy. You could point to a scripture and say, Do you form that to Arius and his followers? And they say, Yeah, we believe that, you know, but then they would say with this understanding or with this idea. So they had to come up with different, you know, this creed to say, Okay, like look, you're either you either agree with this or you don't, you know, like <laughs> it's pretty clear, you know, like line in the sand. And so they admitted that they didn't agree with what they were saying. Mm. So it, it makes it, it makes it, it makes it clear where perhaps you could take a particular passage of scripture out of context and say, well, I understand it my way and you understand it your way kind of thing. So it just makes it clear. Yeah. You understand. Yeah. All right. So we mentioned earlier that Mormons will often claim that they don't have creeds, but do they, uh, given the definition of creed that we've kind of been discussing tonight, do they, do they have creeds? Yeah, I kind of also jumped the gun on that a little bit too. Like, yeah, I do kind of think that uh, the Articles of Faith is the most obvious uh, example of a creed, although maybe it's not as uh, well. It is technically scripture, so I guess it's even different. It's it's has more authority than we believe it had, creeds should have because they believe that it was revealed from God. That uh, they so basically, if it's scripture, they have to believe it, right? Isn't that kind of the idea of scripture? Mm -hmm. uh, it's God's word. So they've elevated the. 13 articles of faith to scripture, whereas we wouldn't even hold the creeds to the level of scripture, which is kind of fascinating. So it's even super, it's like super, it's a, it's a super creed, <laughs> you know, when it's on the level of scripture. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and there's actually, um, someone mentioned this, uh, on Facebook a while, a few days ago. And I, I remember seeing it and thinking, um, that I should know a little bit more about that, but they, they made the claim that Joseph Smith actually changed the content of the articles of faith, the LDS articles of faith. And I, I've seen that charge kind of thrown around uh, before, um, but had never really dug into it because as far as I knew, the articles of faith came from the Wentworth letter, uh, which he wrote in 1842 um, to a uh, Chicago newspaper editor um, to kind of give a, a brief history of the LDS faith and, and also what they believed. And so the, the 13 statements that are, uh, as you noted, canonized as the LDS Articles of Faith, um, 
they come from that Wentworth letter, um, but there were earlier versions. Um, and I, I found an article uh, on um, churchofjesuschrist.org written by John W. Welch and David J. Whitaker called We Believe. Uh, and the subtitle is Development of the Articles of Faith. Um, so I guess they did change over time. But um, as you noted, uh, the 1842 version written by Joseph Smith um, is the one that's canonized. And also it comes through, you know, the the person that they revere as a prophet. And so they, that those hold, I guess, more authority than the previous versions. So the article kind of notes that there was a version uh, written by Oliver Cowdery uh, in 1834 in the Latter-day Saints Messenger and Advocate periodical. Um, and so there's uh, 13 statements there as well, but they're quite different um, than what you find in the 1842 version. Uh, similar sentiments there, but definitely different ordering and um, some different wording as well. Uh, and then uh, Joseph Young also wrote a version. Um, trying to see if it says where his was published. Uh, so he was proselyting in Boston in 1836 uh, and was approached by John Hayward, a local editor, and asked for a written statement uh, of the creeds, doctrines, sentiments, or religious notions of the LDS Church. And so he presented uh, one, two, three, four, five, five uh, statements that that he would have called Articles of Faith. Uh, Orson Pratt in 1840 wrote um, some. Uh, it was in a tract that was titled Interesting Account of Several Remarkable Visions and of the Late Discovery of Ancient American Records. Um, and I think this is the version uh, that gets closer to what Joseph Smith produces in 1842. Um, but um, then Orson Hyde in uh, Germany, in Frankfurt, Germany in 1842, uh, published a, a tract called A Cry from the Wilderness. And the fourth chapter has uh, some additional um, articles of faith. But the, the ones that are accepted are those that, that Joseph Smith penned in the Wentworth letter. Um, and I, I would say that, um, you know, they're, they're treated almost in the same way that creeds are in, in Christianity. Um, you know, primary children, as they're graduating from primary and going into young women's and young men's programs as teenagers, um, they're often asked to memorize and recite one of the articles of faith uh, before the congregation. Um, sometimes in Sunday school, if you're studying a particular doctrine, uh, the lesson manual will instruct you to do a recitation of one of the articles of faith. Um, and so there's definitely some um, some ways in which they're treated similarly. And and just based on what you were saying earlier about the meaning of, of the word creed and, and it's, you know, uh, coming from the root in, in Latin credo, which means I believe, um, you know, the, the way that the articles of faith are, are each uh, began with the statement we believe. Um, except for one of them, I think, uh, I think 12 of them begin with the statement we believe. Um, they're definitely kind of set up as a, as a creed of sorts for the LDS church. And um, when I was serving as a missionary, uh, L. Tom Perry, who at the time was, uh, he's passed away now, but he was one of the uh, 12 apostles of the LDS church. He gave a talk in, in one of the general conferences while I was on my mission about the articles of faith and encouraged uh, all Latter-day Saints to study uh, the teachings of Mormonism uh, in light of the articles of faith. Uh, and if that's not um, 
the way that creeds are used in broader Christianity, uh, I don't, I don't know what is. Right? You study uh, what the Christian Church believes in, in light of the creeds and what they state. So, um, although Latter Day Saints have this anti-creedal uh, sentiment, they do have some statements that that function uh, at least as a creed uh, for them. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be. And the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. All right, so that brings us to the content, Matthew, of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I figured we'd just kind of read through uh, each of the 12 statements of the Apostles' Creed and talk about uh, each one individually uh, briefly. Uh, you good with that? Sounds good. Do you have it up in front of you? Uh, let's see. Yes, I do. Okay. So if you want to read the first one and then uh, share anything you want to share on that, um, I think maybe make a statement as we go on each one, whether or not we think Latter-day Saints could agree with this, that statement of the Apostles' Creed. Sure. Yeah, sounds good. So the creed starts out by saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So uh, in terms of comments on that, I think that's pretty explicit. Although um, LDS might uh, ask us, well, does that mean that the Father is the only God? You know, that only the Father is God? Well, of course, we believe that Christ is God. Um, I think it's just kind of following the standard, uh, the Pauline, how how Paul does in, in his letters. He kind of refers to God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think that's kind of, he's just following they're following that kind of structure there with that first, what's that first clause, I guess, that first phrase. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty clear that the, the God, the father created heaven and earth, although not completely separate from this, the son and the Holy spirit, you know, it was a Trinitarian act of creation, but I think we, we attribute that specifically to God, the father, not because he was the sole one doing it or because he did it of his own will, but because um, I forget what the phrase is. Uh, Matthew Barrett's uh Simply Trinity. He he he's he basically talks about how a lot of times in Scripture we ascribe certain acts to a specific person in the Trinity, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's completely separate from the other two, or that you know they did it by themselves. So I think that's kind of what's going on here. Is God is you know the Father is you know the one who we pray to, the one who sent the Son into the world. He's the one orchestrating and directing everything. So that's kind of what he's ascribed or attributed uh, as creator of heaven and earth even though that doesn't mean that the, the spirit and son were completely not involved they were involved but yeah a lot of rambling there but hope that makes sense <laughs> yeah it does make sense so i think some of the statements may be where um latter-day saints might have a a difficult time um signing on to uh our um god the father almighty um 
because as you as you noted, uh, they might ask, is is God the only is the Father the only God? Um, and and you kind of took that to uh, to the sense that yes, we would also as Christians um, affirm that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God. Um, but Latter Day Saints have a particular uh, anthropology, a particular view of humanity uh, that um, you know, according to Joseph Smith, the uh, the mind of man is uncreated. And so um, there's a there's an aspect of humanity uh, that, uh, like God the Father, is affirmed in Christianity to be uncreated. Uh, on Mormonism, uh, Latter Day Saints affirm that um, there's an aspect of humanity that is uncreated as well. And so um, they might quibble about that. And then you know that goes to the the whole idea of uh, creator of heaven and earth. Uh, they would also probably quibble. Uh, there over whether creation was uh, ex, ni- ex nihilo or uh, ex materia uh, from from nothing or from preexistent materials, um, and Christians would would affirm that um, creation was ex nihilo, and and so that would uh, kind of exclude any idea that that um, humanity was created from preexisting intelligences uh, that are co eternal with God uh, as as Joseph Smith would have uh, would have put it. Yeah, lots of good points. All right. So the next um, statement in the Apostles' Creed is um, the first statement began, I believe. And so the second statement begins with and, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord. Um, I think uh, there's not much here that on the surface, a Latter-day Saint would disagree with. Um, Christians affirm that that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son, our Lord. Um, on the surface, I say, but there's a word in here, uh, begotten, that Latter Day Saints and Christians have very different views uh, about the meaning of that word. Uh, do you want to say a little bit about that, Matthew? <clears throat> yeah, you can get. Actually, I was reading or thinking about this earlier because there was a lot of controversy in the early church about what it meant that, that Jesus was the monogamous theos, um, you know, which, which is the Greek for, which has traditionally been translated only begotten son, what, you know, or only begotten God is monogamous theos and uh, monogamous huias is only begotten son. So what does that mean? And there's a lot of controversy behind that, but like the, the traditional Nicene understanding, which is basically what Trinitarian Christianity accepts today. It's the idea that, um, so Christ is, one with the father in essence. So they're homoousios, meaning whatever, what makes the father God is shared with the son. So the son is just as much God as the father is. And the father kind of begot eternally in eternity past. So it's not, it's not a moment in time. It's kind of like an eternal begetting, which we don't really know what that means, but um, it's an eternally begetting of the son. So the father in eternity past, he's, he's always been begetting the son, but it's an, it's an eternal beginning. So there's no reference to time. It's also an internal beginning. So it's not like God, the father created a second God. You know, it's the son is the same essence as the father. So it's one God. So that's the traditional understanding of, of what it means for Christ to be um, the son of God. Um and like I said, there's been a lot of other different views of what it means to be son of God. You know, some, I think, uh, Arius, who's a, who's a controversy at the Council of Nicaea, he said that he's the son of God in the sense that he's the first created being of the father and the only created being of the father. And then everything else was created by the son. So those, those are definitions that we would reject. Um, but yeah, that's the traditional understanding. And that differs from LDS because they believe that Christ is 
in two senses, the literal son of the father. One, spiritually, where uh, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, uh, in some sense or in some way, organized Jesus's spirit body, in, you know, back before that world was created. And in the second sense, he's the literal father of Christ, uh, in some sense also, and you'll get a lot of debate there. Um, there were statements, I think, from the Pratts primarily, and maybe, maybe Brigham Young, that talked about how God the Father came down and literally begat Christ by consorting with Mary, you know, the Virgin Mary. But I think traditionally Mormons or Latter-day Saints, they leave that to mystery. But, but in some sense, God the Father is the literal father of Jesus's physical body as well, which is something that um, Christians, historical Christianity has not really believed in, which I think we'll get into in the next line. Yeah, yeah, very good points. Um, so I, li- I like where you went with, with talking about um, you know, the eternal beginning of the sun and, and Matthew Barrett gets into this a lot in Simply Trinity. Um, it's, uh, if there's any uh, listeners that, that would be interested in, in uh, that book, I, I would highly recommend it. It's, um, it gets into some deep theology, but it's written in an engaging way. Um, I was surprised because I expected it to be uh, you know, just full on deep theology, but uh, he, he writes you know, about his own um, fandom of, of Los Angeles teams and you know, sports teams. So it's, 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 it's a very engaging book. Um, but um, so do Latter-day Saints have a belief in the eternal begetting of the sun? Do you think? I don't think so. Well, I think it depends on how you, they would define eternal, because a lot of times when you point to passages that say that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, they'll point to the Hebrew word word for everlasting. And it means, well, it's like on the horizon, you know, it's a really long ways away, but we don't know what's beyond the horizon. So they might define eternal or everlasting as just a really, really long time, but it's still a finite amount of time. So maybe how is, they, so how is that different than, than how Christians would define the term eternal? Eternal meaning just outside time, you know, without yeah. respect to time. So they would, they might before all word worlds, right? That's the the language of the Nicene Creed before all worlds. Right, exactly. Yeah, so they might say, well, yeah, sure, I believe that Christ was eternally begotten of the Father, but eternally meaning a long time ago, or or even eternal has kind of been redefined in the Doctrine and Covenants to mean related to God. You know, eternal suffering is not suffering without end. Doctrine and Covenants says that eternal suffering is God's suffering. Eternal life is God's life. So they kind of redefine it there. So that's why I say it depends on how they would use the term eternal. Hmm. So I've, you know, we talked about uh, in a previous episode where we, we, um, we reacted to a, um, an article uh, by uh, a BYU professor. We had Jackson Washburn on to talk about uh, that article. Um, It's um, we talked about in that episode, how, you know, at least that BYU professor was, expressing the idea that he thought Latter-day Saints could um, could adopt the belief that uh, Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. Um, and so if, if our listeners want to go back and check out that episode, we talk about that uh, kind of at length there. But um, I just kind of want to zero in on that word begotten because we've, we've kind of teased out some differences there. But as I noted uh, with relation to the first statement of the Apostles' Creed, Latter-day Saints have this anthropology, this view of humanity where we are co-eternal with God. And so if that's the case, and, and as, as Latter-day Saints will often claim that uh, humans and Jesus and God the Father are all of the same species is the language that they will use. Um, if that's the case, if, if Latter-day Saints are 
correct about that, then you're doing away completely with any idea of Jesus being, or as Christ being the only begotten son. Um, there's, there's no sense in which you can affirm that humanity is the same species as God and also affirm that Jesus is the only begotten son. Um, and so that's a, that's a huge difference. Um, and so it, it, you know, that, that understanding when I was first leaving the LDS church led me to, to ask the question several times in, in LDS discussion forums, you know, isn't it true then that if your doctrine is true, any of us could technically have filled the role of savior. There's nothing uh, unique about Jesus Christ that made him uniquely able to carry out that role that we couldn't have done uh, given our natures, according to Latter-day Saint teaching. Would you agree with, with my assessment of that, Matthew? Uh, to an extent, because I know that they would probably say that Christ was the only possible candidate to be savior because he was the firstborn. Um, meaning the literal firstborn spirit offspring of Heavenly Father and his wife, one of his wives, possibly. So like this, this firstborn status gave him certain prerogatives, I guess. I think that's kind of how Bruce Rakonki has explained it. But I do agree that he's, in, in terms of his his being, his essence, he's not of, the, of a completely different kind that would make it completely separate from us. It's It's in NLDS thought anyway, he's, he's of the same kind as us just like further progressed. And so I guess it would be possible potentially. I mean, I don't know. I would have to ask NLDS this, but what if, you know, I guess the only real difference is they believe that God, the God, the father is the literal physical father of Jesus's mortal body. So if by some miraculous means, instead of Jesus, it were somebody else that were conceived, you know, by the working of the Holy spirit in a virgin that they could have been, you know, the savior, I don't know. But um, so, yeah, like I said, they might give you some pushback on that because Jesus was the firstborn and we aren't. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right to kind of uh, lean into that idea that I think it was Orson Pratt kind of put forth, right? That um, the, the, where, where Jesus Christ becomes unique uh, on the LDS view is, is in that idea of a literal physical begetting. And that's, that's, We'll get into it more with the next statement, but uh, I also wanted to point out that the the term only begotten shows up a lot in the Book of Mormon um, and in the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, so I think Latter-day Saints need to wrestle a little bit with what they mean uh, by only begotten and 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 whether that's a, a a loan word from Christianity, a loan term from Christianity that that they can fully adopt uh, given their anthropology, given to what they believe about. Uh, the nature of humanity. Um, and we we have other programs too, where we talked about Christ. Uh, I couldn't give you specific ones, but I'm sure if you go to our, our uh, article of faith series, where we talk about the first article of faith and the Trinity, um, we talked about how, like, in, for example, in John 8, Jesus says, you are from below, I am from above. There are a lot of passages that indicate that he is uniquely from God, you know, in a way that none of humanity is. So not just physically, you know, is he unique? But he is of he's divine in the sense that he came from heaven where we didn't. So I think that's important to point out because LDS believe we all came from above. So how do you affirm those passages where Jesus says, I'm from above, you are from below? So yep. Very good. And the the episode I was referencing uh, with Jackson Washburn was episode 93, the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Um, and I put divinity first in that title because I think um, as I challenged Latter-day Saints just now to to really think through uh, their anthropology. 
um, the divinity of Jesus Christ and what that means is critical uh, to the atonement. And I think with Latter-day Saint theology, there's some areas where uh, it becomes less critical. And so you, you end up left, you, you, you're left wondering um, why the Book of Mormon would say that God himself must come down and atone for the sins of the people uh, if, if, according to LDS uh, views of eternal progression, Jesus Christ hadn't himself progressed through all of the uh, steps necessary for Latter-day Saints to become gods and goddesses. All right, Matthew, you want to read the next statement? Sure. Statement number three, right? Yep. So continuing on, speaking of Jesus, it says, who was conceived from the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So uh, the previous statement of this one kind of dip into each other, you know, they lead right into each other. So I think maybe we won't have a lot to say about this, but um, I think LDS and traditional Christianity would agree about the Virgin Mary, although a lot of traditional Christianity would believe that Mary is, was perpetually sinless, um, that perpetually a virgin like you know even after christ's birth uh she didn't have any children uh, that's that's kind of the more roman catholic uh and some some more traditional branches like anglicanism and maybe lutheran maybe anglicans and lutherans would believe in the perpetual virginity of mary but at the time of jesus's birth we we agree that she was a virgin um but the line that's a really controversial one uh, is that about how he was conceived from the holy spirit so they would probably have to give an asterisk there to say that they agree with that to say, well, it's Jesus was conceived by the working of the Holy spirit in some fashion, you know, because as we said, they believe that Jesus is the literal physical offspring of the father and how that works. Some go so far to say that, you know, they they try to get into the mechanics of it. Like, well, the Holy spirit transmitted, you know, half of the father's chromosomes into her belly, you know, to, to create a, a, you know, the, the zygote, you know, all the mechanics of the, the biology of it. And some just say, well, it's up to mystery. Somehow the spirit was involved, somehow the father is involved. And so it really depends on which LDS you'll talk about, but they don't really have a hard, solid doctrinal statement on what that means, you know, that Jesus was conceived by the working of the Holy Spirit. They just know the spirit was involved, but yet he, at the same time, he's not the offspring of the spirit because then the spirit would be the father of Jesus's physical body. They still believe that the father is the literal father of his physical body, but and, and all that, and all of that is it's really only a problem for the Latter Day Saint, right? Yeah. Because because of their view of the Godhead as three separate physical beings um, rather than one God. Exactly. So if you if it was the same God, yeah, it wouldn't be a problem. But we don't like it, like we were talking about earlier. We don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God just because because he's the physical offspring of God, we believe that he's eternally God's son, you know, even long before the world was created, mm-hmm. even before time existed, he was still the son. So this idea that he's, he has to be the physical offspring of only the father is, yeah, like you said, only a problem for LDS. What about you? Do you have any thoughts on this? You would add to that? Um, just, just to make the statement that we're not trying to be offensive to Latter-day Saints. We know that um, Latter-day Saints do not necessarily accept the views of Orson Pratt uh, or uh, other early Latter-day Saint leaders uh, in the polygamy period who, um, you know, made some statements with regards to the conception of Jesus Christ that that modern Latter-day Saints would not hold to. Um, we're not trying to hold you accountable to those and say, that's what you believe. Um, we're just kind of pointing out that um, there is a sense in which those statements made by those leaders are 
they're not just kind of crazy off the wall statements. They are attempting to be consistent with the rest of Latter-day Saint theology, which is why they land where they do with those statements, uh, even if they are offensive to modern Latter-day Saint ears. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great uh, disclaimer to add. All right. So the fourth statement uh, suffered under under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. So um, the first three clauses there uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead and buried. Those all uh, are affirmations of the uh, story of Christ's life and ministry and death and burial in the Gospels. Um, The statement he descended into hell uh, comes from... Uh, this is Second Peter. Um, I'm so bad right now because I don't have the the reference on that. But it's um, Latter Day Saints like this statement because, or this the passage that that's based on because it um, for them it, it it's a proof text for their belief in kind of a two tiered um, life after death prior to the final judgment uh, where. Uh, the spirits of the righteous will go to paradise. The spirits of the wicked will go to uh, spirit prison. And so for them, this, the idea that's behind this is that he went to spirit prison to preach the gospel and to initiate the preaching of the gospel to those who are in spirit prison uh, to give them a, an, a, a second chance after death to accept the gospel and be saved, um, which is a doctrine very uh, somewhat similar to uh, the the Catholic Roman Catholic uh, doctrine of purgatory um, that uh, certain souls will uh, do uh, penance and, and receive punishment in purgatory uh, until their uh, souls are purged of uh, and refined. And then they're, they're able to go on to salvation. Um, so what are your thoughts there on, on this statement here? He descended into hell, the, the harrowing of hell, all of that. Yeah, there's that's a topic I've always found fascinating. There's different views amongst the Reformed. What this what this phrase means that Jesus descended to hell. There's a difference in amongst Lutherans and Orthodox and Catholics. They all have different views of what this means. And I think uh, I don't know the Second Peter one off the top of my head, uh, but there is a passage in Ephesians four. Um, so reading it, it says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives away and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? And that's kind of also, uh, it's also kind of in reference to Psalm 1610, which is quoted in Acts 2.27. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. And in Psalms, it's Sheol, which is kind of like the Jewish idea of the underworld or death. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, which the underworld or, you know, the place of the dead, nor will you let your holy one see decay. So, yeah, there's this idea of Jesus dying and being laid in the earth. And so in the Latin, it was, um, it, it talks about defending uh, of the Latin version of the Apostles' Creed, I should say. It's descended ad inferos, which is he descended into hell. Um, so that's kind of a controversial one because people have different ideas of what it means. The reformed view is kind of like, well, he descended into hell on the cross in the sense of he descended into ultimate suffering for our sins. And the kind of the more, yeah, like you said, the traditional view is he literally descended into the place of the dead uh, for various reasons. So I think, yeah, that's that's the one that I think is the most controversial. I think even amongst confessing Christians, Trinitarian Christians, right, <laughs> that, that we would kind of even debate about what that means exactly. But I don't think it's anti-scriptural. It's just that maybe we interpret what that means exactly differently but was with ldsac yeah that he descended into to hades which is the spirit world um in the, the spirit paradise right because they believe that jesus couldn't go personally to spirit prison he had to send envoys messengers there yeah i'm not finding the passage right now um 
but it's it's definitely that idea right that that christ preached um it's it's in one of the epistles of peter um talks about the the um those who had um died you know in the in the times of noah um oh so, yeah it's uh first peter three yeah first peter three so um let me see if i can 319 is that what it is yeah it kind of starts 18 through 20 yeah yeah um so i think it's uh it's important to read through these um but also as you know it's, it's important to note also that um just like with the scriptures right we can as we read something we can import our own ideas of what it might mean into it right so as, as a latter-day saint might read the apostles creed and read this he descended into hell their mind is going to go to first peter three nineteen, right yep. um but it's not that's not necessarily what uh this is referring to um so i want to read again from uh the know your creed know the creeds and councils book uh, by justin s holcomb um, where he talks about this this part of the creed he says for those who grew up in a roman catholic context the expression he descended into hell may be familiar because it is associated with the doctrine of the harrowing of hell in catholic theology the idea is that after christ's death on the cross his spirit descended into sheol the world the word in hebrew for the underworld where the dead reside in order to preach the gospel to the patriarchs the old testament saints and potentially two other virtuous pagans who lived before the revelation of jesus christ um, so that's again this thought is based on uh first peter three um much of this discussion is not based on the Bible. The New Testament itself emphasizes the consequences of Christ's death and resurrection from the dead, in which he triumphs over sin, death, and the devil, rather than what Christ did between death and resurrection. Uh, initially, the language of descent into hell was borrowed from the Old Testament. As you noted, it simply meant that Jesus died or passed to Sheol, the pit or grave, just as any other person did. Um, so it's another kind of statement about uh, that that Jesus was like us in every way, right? That uh, in the incarnation, um, whatever was not uh, assumed by Jesus was not redeemed by Jesus, right? I think uh, Athanasius, right? So that, or no, maybe that was uh, Irenaeus on the incarnation. Um, whatever was not assumed by Christ was not redeemed by Christ with regards to humanity. And so death itself uh, as well, um, so dying was the final stage going on with what uh, Justin Holcomb writes. Dying was the final stage of Christ's humiliation, a necessary passage before his triumph in the resurrection. Second century theologian Tertullian wrote that, quote, Christ, our God, who because he was man died according to the same scriptures, satisfied this law also by undergoing the form of human death in the underworld and did not ascend aloft to heaven until he had gone down to the regions beneath the earth. Um, and so, uh, again, it's just um, it's affirming that jesus died um he truly died uh he in the way that we all will die uh is what that's affirming it's not really making a statement about what uh first peter three says yep yeah lots of good comments thanks for sharing that all right number five i scroll down okay so we just read um how he descended to hell rose again from the dead on the third day so continuing on ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of god the father almighty I guess I could continue to say who will come again to judge the living and the dead. So that's the next two phrases. So in terms of that, we, we agree on the ascension, you know, in Acts chapter one, Jesus ascended into heaven um, in a cloud and he's seated at the right hand of God, the father almighty. So we would probably read an LDS would read that and say, yeah, I agree. God, the father is a man glorified body. Now Jesus has a, is a man with a glorified body and they're both sitting on thrones right next to each other. But when we look at, passages of scripture that talk about jesus being on the right hand of god 
it's either meant in a metaphorical sense, meaning like right hand of power, meaning like he's the the one who's next to father in glory. And, and like, he's, he's the one who's given all power in heaven and in earth, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, or when Stephen looked up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of God. And in there, you never hear anything about a body from the father. So LDS uses that as a proof text very often to show, Hey, the father has a body just like Jesus. But if you scroll back, it says he saw the glory of God. Well, what is glory? Light, luminance, radiance, um, that kind of thing. So he saw like the light that represented the father and Jesus next to that light. So that's, I think the big disagreement we would have is because we just don't believe that God, the father has a physical body because that opens up a can of worms. How, where did he get this body? He would have to have gotten it from a different world. Well, who was, how did he create a different world before this world? Well, then he must've had a God above him that created that world. And then God, the father got his body from that world, obeying the commandments like Jesus did and so on and so forth. So there's just no need for the father to have a body and there's no reason why he does have a body. Um, there's nothing in scripture that affirms that he has a body. Yep. Yep. All good points on uh, kind of noting the places where Latter-day Saints might have some uh, disagreements with statements in the creed. Um, all right. So uh, the eighth um, statement is I believe in the Holy ghost. Um, I think the only aspect of that, uh, that Latter-day Saints might disagree with uh, is just the nature of the the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, um, where Latter-day Saints would say that the Holy Spirit is a uh, an as yet unembodied uh, intelligence, uh, separate in being from the Father and the Son, uh, who will at some point in the future, uh, uh, at least according to speculation, receive his own body and uh, and have a chance to become uh, fully God, uh, according to Latter-day Saint teaching. Um, and so, uh, that's, that's one difference. Um, and again, it's a I'll point back to the second statement. It's, it's again, where, um, I, I don't think it's possible for Latter-day Saints to say, uh, with regard to, uh, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit, that they are each, uh, fully God, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, according to their theology now, Yes. Prior to his incarnation? No, they, I don't think they could affirm that. Uh, whereas Christians would affirm that Jesus was fully God before the incarnation um, and after the incarnation and that the Holy Spirit is fully God as well. So, Yeah, that's a great point. It's, it's interesting to look at the Apostles' Creed and also the Nicene Creed because there's really not a lot there about the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. It's almost kind of like an addendum to the rest of it. And especially in the Nicene Creed because and I see a, the, the issue wasn't the Holy Spirit. They weren't debating about that. They're debating about who Christ is and how he relates to the Father. So there's really not a lot of development in terms of who the Holy Spirit is in the early, early church. That's kind of more, they kind of had to find out later, okay, well, who is the Holy Spirit? Is it a person? Is it a force? You know, I think in the earliest church, they, they referred, always referred to him as a person, not as an inanimate force. But, um, but yeah, they, when they developed the idea that well, when they define the idea that Jesus or that the son is homoousios with the father, it's only natural that the Holy Spirit, who's referred to as God, is also homoousios with the father, because otherwise he could not be truly God. He would have to be a lesser being or, or something else. So, yeah, we, we, we also affirm that just as Christ is not a separate God or a separate being from the father, the spirit is not a separate being or a separate God from the father. And as you pointed out, uh, we, we're not expecting the Holy Spirit to have a body someday or to progress or to do anything like that he'll he's always been god and he always will be god and that's another thing i want to point out is uh and you'll see a lot of christian hymns like i we we follow the trinity hymnal in our church which is kind of a more reformed uh hymnal and there are songs in there 
praising and worshiping the Holy Spirit, which you would never, ever, ever see in an LDS church. <laughs> they do not pray to the Holy Spirit. They do not give praise and glory to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is seen is seen kind of like, a, uh, who is it, like a Hermes, you know, in like Greek mythology. He's just the messenger that kind of goes to and from God to us and does things for God. And he is a God, but we're not supposed to talk to him directly or you know, worship him directly. That's a, that's a no-no. But we as Christians who believe the Holy Spirit is truly God, we can worship him. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. I remember the first time um, singing in church, the doxology, and it was like, wow, this is so different. Would never have done this uh, in the Latter-day Saint church. So, yep. All right. Uh, next one. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. Um, so I think uh, this would be a major point of divergence as well for Latter-day Saints. Um, I don't think Latter-day Saints could say they believe in the Holy Catholic Church. There are some uh, now who want to be kind of soft peddling their views to uh, Christians of other faiths and say, well, you're Christians, we're Christians, and we've got more stuff than you. (laughs) Um, But uh, that more stuff piece is the belief in a great apostasy. So they're, they're, according to Latter-day Saint teaching, there is no other church that has priesthood authority to perform ordinances. And so, uh, as uh, Brad Wilcox pointed out in a recent uh, fireside where he was kind of taken to task on this issue, but more so on another, uh, but he he made the statement that other churches are just playing church. Um, and that's that really is the Latter-day Saint view. Uh, if you if you take the doctrine seriously, that, that no other church uh, is authorized by God uh, and Jesus Christ to uh, bring people to salvation. And so there is no salvation in any other church, but the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, according to their, their doctrine. So I don't think they could say they believe in the Holy Catholic church. And by the, this isn't referencing the Roman Catholic church. This is small C Catholic church, which means universal, um, which is the idea that uh, the church exists wherever the gospel has been preached and uh, Christ has been received uh, and and uh, people have been drawn to the son by the father. Amen. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, this idea that, like you said, that the great apostasy, the fundamental belief of the Holy Catholic Church is that it has always been here. When Christ set up his church, it wasn't taken from the earth, even though it's gotten messy, as we've talked about. You know, we've had divisions. We've had, um, you know, uh, there's been the Crusades. There's been all kinds of bad stuff in the past through a few centuries there's always been the promise that the gates of hades would not prevail against christ's church it's always been here and that doesn't mean that everything the church did was good i think that's a problem that some people take you know they say well god gave us a church so you know whatever holy mother church does is good and righteous and acceptable to god but i don't think that's necessarily the case you know i mean half of the new testament is written about things that the church did that was not good <laughs> that was not acceptable and i and i praise god for that because that gives us a, an example of like yeah the, the church is going to always be messy Cor- corinth was just a big mess and it never got better really <laughs> it continued to have problems even after you know the apostolic era and so um yeah but but there's this idea of that the, the church will has never been taken from the earth and that it never will be taken from the earth and so we can take comfort in that right exactly um all right so i think uh we can cover the the final three 10 11 and 12 uh as one if you want to read those and then share your thoughts on those sure so continuing on we i believe in the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting amen so forgiveness of sins 
Uh, yes, I don't think we really have much disagreement there. Although what qualifies as a sin, we may have an issue there because LDS believe that you have to have a full understanding or knowledge of something for it to be a sin, which is why Adam and Eve was a transgression. They didn't have knowledge of, of what they were doing, so it wasn't a sin to them. Um, so, but, but in terms of us and our sins, since we do have knowledge, you know, we, we do receive that forgiveness of sins. Um, we, we do have kind of a similar view of sin is what I'm trying to say. So we believe that without the forgiveness of sins, there is no salvation. So in some sense, you have to be forgiven of your sins to return to live with God because no unclean thing can enter God's presence. And we agree on that. Uh, in terms of the resurrection of the body, I think that's pretty clear too, just as Jesus rose from the grave and he appeared to the apostles with a body that, um, that was resurrected and glorified. We agree on that. And so we believe that all those who are in Christ will be resurrected as well as those who are not in Christ, they will also be resurrected. Um, and the life everlasting, uh, that's not just saying that we'll live forever and ever and ever, but it's living in God's presence, those who are in Christ and, and are saved. But the, the big difference is, is that we don't believe that there are different kingdoms of glory necessarily. There's debate as to whether there are different rewards in heaven based on how faithful you were in life amongst Christians, which is what I personally see when I see scripture, you know, um, passages that talk about how, you know, God and in, in Revelation, it talks about how he opens the books and he rewards to everyone, good or bad, you know, so I believe that there's going to be a lot of saints ahead of me, you know, that, that have, you know, <laughs> I don't know, bigger mansions than me or whatever in heaven. And I'm fine with that. I'm cool with that. But that doesn't mean that they're in a completely different kingdom or that they're completely separated from the from God's presence. LDS theology, if you read DNC 76, it says that only those who are in the celestial kingdom can access the father, can, can be in the presence of the father. And even then you have to reach the highest level of there's three levels in the celestial kingdom. You have to reach exaltation, the highest level to be in the fullness of the presence of the father and to have an existence like he has. We don't believe that we're not going to be like different levels of gods and, and angels and stuff in heaven. We're all going to be just Christ's bride in heaven and praising and glorifying God, you know, in, in our resurrected bodies. So that's kind of the difference I would say is, you know, there's not like different tiers of heaven based on what ordinances you received or what covenants you were faithful to, you know, we're yeah. either in heaven. What or level of righteousness you were able to attain to. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the, it's a huge difference uh, when you're talking about that, um, you know, and, and, it, and it goes to the, the line about forgiveness of sins. Um, although there, you know, we do believe that uh, we, we agree with Latter-day Saints that forgiveness of sins is necessary to obtain eternal life um there there is some difference as you noted in terms of what sin is and when and how we receive forgiveness and which sins we receive forgiveness for for example at baptism uh, latter-day saints would say that uh, baptism cleanses you from past sins it does not absolve you of future sin um, so you have to continually repent and uh, maintain your worthiness within the latter-day saint faith and and, and ideas of uh uh, salvation. So, um, you know, we've talked about in, in many previous episodes, the Latter-day Saints end up feeling a, a heavy weight uh, that they, they're not good enough uh, for those higher levels of the celestial kingdom, uh, as you noted, Matthew. So um, that's a big difference because the, the Christian faith, the Christian gospel is good news because it's about the faithfulness of God, not about the faithfulness of man. Um, it's about the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. And so the Christian has hope even in their struggles against sin throughout the rest of their 
their Christian walk, uh, they have the hope and the promise of Christ that he will fulfill his promises and bring them into the presence of the Father. Amen. And, and something I was reading about recently that's interesting that I was reading in differences between Reformed and Lutherans, they're, they're different traditions, but they both agree that the law in and of itself cannot do anything to help us. The law only really shows us our sin. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, but at the same time, it's not terrible. You know, you know, Paul says that the law is a good thing in Romans, but he, but it's not by the law that we progress to some higher level of existence or something like that. We're saved by the gospel, the good news that Christ died for us in, on our behalf. And the law serves as kind of like a standard of moral principles to follow, but that's not how we're saved anymore. You know, it's not like we're in, we get in to the church by, you know, by the gospel, and then we stay in and achieve higher levels of existence by good works. You know, it's, it's all the gospel. Whereas in the LDS church, and I'm not trying to say that they believe that in works righteousness, purely works righteousness, but they do believe that every blessing from God is, is predicated upon obedience to a law. And so the whole system is obedience to a law in some sense. So even the gospel to them is a law in, the, in that sense. It's like a law you have to keep is accepting the LDS church. They call it the laws and ordinances of the gospel, yep. which seems kind of contradictory to most probably historical Christians. You know, They see law kind of in opposition to the gospel or law fulfilled in the gospel rather than being the gospel being a law in and of itself. Very good. Have you, do you listen at all to um, the White Horse End podcast? I've tried to listen to some of their stuff and it's been pretty good, but I think it's behind a paywall now. So I was like, eh, forget it. <laughs> oh, it is? Huh. I think on their website anyway, maybe if you watch it through Spotify or, or listen through Spotify or something, maybe it's. Uh, I, I just stuff. picked up starting to listen to it over the last few days as I've been working on a, a bathroom remodel mm-hmm. and um, they, they're doing a series of episodes through the book of Hebrews that I think is really good. And, and I was listening to one uh, yesterday as I was doing some painting called Jesus, our hope, or no, it was like, I guess it was today. Cause it came out today. Uh, it's called Jesus, our hope. And um, it's, it, they, they cover uh, those challenging passages in Hebrews um, that lots of Latter-day Saints like to, to throw out there as, as uh, kind of a proof text that see Christians can lose their salvation. Um, Hebrews six, I think it is. Um, and they, so they cover those passages and, and talk about uh, how Jesus is our hope. So I would recommend that episode uh, to our listeners. It's um, again, it's the white horse in podcast uh, Jesus, our hope episode. Um published uh, February 20th of 2022. Uh, really good podcast episode that goes kind of in depth on some of the topics that, that Matthew and I were just uh, kind of going into uh, with this with the idea of forgiveness of sins and and law and gospel and, and life everlasting. And so I um, would recommend that episode. But uh, Fireflies, that kind of brings us to the end of our discussion on the Apostles' Creed. I just want to close out with a, another quote from uh, Know the Councils, Know the Creeds and Councils by Justin S. Holcomb. Um, he says, Many churches still recite the Apostles' Creed during baptisms as a summary of the faith into which Christians are baptized. Church historian Philip Schaff notes that, quote, as the Lord's Prayer is the prayer of prayers, the Decalogue, uh, the Ten Commandments, the Law of Laws, so the Apostles' Creed is the Creed of Creeds, end quote. Uh, And Justin Holcomb goes on to say, perhaps more than any other profession of faith, the Apostles' Creed has expressed the essentials of Christianity in a way that Christians of all stripes can rally around. And I would challenge Latter-day Saints listeners to ask themselves, uh, can they, with with Christians of all stripes, uh, rally around the statements in the Apostles' Creed without any fudging? That was good. Thanks for uh, hanging out, Paul. It was a good episode. It was good to catch up with you. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Matthew.
We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to Outer Brightness wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're benefiting from our content, please write a review to help us spread the word. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. Music for Outer Brightness is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and Adams Road. You can learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. worthy of the blood that Jesus shed. But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where he bore sin. And now I have the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus' Except 
In the cross of our Lord Through which the world has been crucified to me And I to the world So I take up my cross And follow where Jesus leads Oh, I consider of the